Hey, good morning. It's great to see all of you. Um, if you don't know me, my name is Steve. I'm on the preaching team here at Hall Center Church and on the elder team. I'm thrilled to be sharing from God's Word with you today. Um, not to demean anybody that might have had their power go out yesterday, but I do love the pictures of the tipped over Walmart chairs in people's lawn and never forget when the sun came out at about 11 o'clock yesterday morning, I was like, what? It was pretty wild. So uh, glad you're all here and boy, we have a beautiful day today. I also wanted to make sure you know those prayer cards. Even while I'm preaching, feel free to, as the Lord lays it on your heart, uh, put something on there. You can leave it in your chair if you're not able to make it up here. Uh, but we have a team that prays over these for the next quarter, and it really is a testament to our faith in prayer, our trust in prayer, that we both do this, that we fill it out, and that we pray over it. So we are in the book of Acts. If you've got your Bibles, we want you to get there. Um, witnesses to the end, and I want to make sure we remember where we were last week at the end of Acts chapter 17. We saw how Paul encountered many that didn't know God, and how he spoke to them, and what he spoke to them can help us reveal Jesus to those around us. And by way of reminder, we saw that Paul engaged from a heart of compassion he was ready for whatever response he got, and wisdom and respect were foundational to his approach. And so we're going to bounce right into Acts 18 in a sermon today called Reminded. And so if you can turn in your Bibles to Acts 18, we're going to look at the first 23 verses. And if you, you're one of those guys who's able to keep a couple passages going, if you can go right to the beginning of 1 Corinthians as well, um, which is not far off. Um, that would be awesome because we're going to uh, just be looking briefly in there as well. Reminded. After my sermon last week, Ken came up to me and told me about his trips up Katahdin that he'd done. And then he offered words of wisdom. He said, Steve, just to remind you, when you get older, your mind starts writing checks your body can't cash. Good reminder. Without a doubt, good reminder. Um, when I was young, speaking of getting old, I used to be able to drink soda. I don't drink soda anymore because it'll kill me in so many ways. And instead, I drink, I drink ahas. You know what ahas, those polars that are cute in Hannaford, that make you feel like you're drinking something cool, but you're not. You're just drinking water that's been pressed through something and has some flavor in it. Well, I drink a lot of that in my office, and, 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 and I have a recyclable can out on the front porch. And, and sometimes I forget that I have a recycling can out on the front porch. She's here again. And so... Sometimes I'm just cleaning out my office and I set it on the counter and, and Lori will say to, you, to, say to me, uh, Steve, um, you realize it's only like 10 more steps to get it into the recycling. And I was like, oh, yeah. 
And so what would I do as a good husband? I just remember that. No, as a good husband, what I did was I took, I have wear size 12 feet, and I measured it. And I said, and I said, I said, Lori, it's actually 44 feet, just so we're clear. And now, and now when I go out to the front porch to bring one of my aha cans to recycle, I say, honey, I'll be back in a bit. Yes, my wife is married to a child. Ah, poor thing. But anyway, we need to be reminded of things. We just do. You guys could probably think of a million things that just we forget, we have to be reminded of. And so today's point, as we dive into the word today, is when our life gets difficult, we are tempted to believe we are not alone. Excuse me, we're tempted to believe we are alone. We aren't. When we struggle, when we find ourselves in, in dark places, when we find ourselves in places of confusion, we are tempted to believe that we're on our own. Not only that, but we also tend to isolate and push people away from us. We're tempted to believe that we're alone and we aren't. And so Paul, we're studying and reading so much about him in the book of Acts, greatest missionary of all time, no doubt. And yet we know that he struggled because he shares that with us in his writings. And so just to sum up today's passage, Paul, last week, if you recall, he was in Athens. And he's going from Athens in today's passage into Corinth and ministering there. And if you want to Go there, 1 Corinthians 2, in his later writings to the Corinthians, he said, and I, when I came to you, this is chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, a couple stuff taken out. When I came to you, brothers, I didn't come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. Listen to what Paul says about how he showed up in Corinth. He says, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. This is Paul, who all we ever do imagine is he's in a toga, sitting on some Parthenon steps, just preaching with such all the confidence in the world. And he says, no, I came to you with fear and trembling. Hmm, and weakness. And so Paul had been through the ringer. We're going to look at that a little bit. And he needed a reminder. And in today's passage, God gave him one. And very often we need one as well. So we're going we're gonna to get there. We're going to get there and it's gonna, around verses uh, 10 and 11. But we gotta, we're going to get through the passage and, and, and see how it builds up to that. We're going to take a look at Paul's trade in verses 1 through 4 of chapter 18. And maybe you don't know Paul had a trade. You're like, I thought he was a missionary. Mm, he was, but he also had a trade. And p- today's passage tells us he had one. So let's look. Verse 1 of Acts 18. After this... Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them. So if you recall last week, there was no church started in Athens. By any measure of Paul's career, Athens was a low point, a dismal failure. A couple people came to Christ in this town of elite intellectuals, he moved on. He went to Corinth. And there had recently been an anti-Jewish and possibly even an anti-Christian Jewish um, stir in Rome. We won't get into all the details, but this couple, 
Aquila and Priscilla, they're forced to move their business to Corinth. Somehow, we don't have all the details, they both come to Christ and they both came into Paul's life. We're not sure which was first, but verse 3 says, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked. For they were tent makers by trade. Verse 4, and he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. Aquila and Priscilla were a great encouragement to Paul. Uh, just so we're clear, just, they're, they're referenced elsewhere. In the final chapter of Romans, Paul calls them his fellow workers in Christ Jesus, saying that they risked their lives for him. That's in chapter 16, verse 3. They were close friends. They worked together. They were Paul's team in Corinth. They were his family in Corinth. He came from Athens alone, met them, and they became his co-workers, his family, his team. And our, and our passage tells us that even though he was working with Aquila and Priscilla, making tents, every Sabbath he'd go back to the synagogue and try to persuade the Jews and Greeks who were there. This man was nothing if not persistent. And so let's keep going on. Occupied with the word, verses 5 through 8. You'll see why I titled this section that in a second. Verse 5. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, right? They'd been over here. Paul went to Athens. They arrived. Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. So let's set the context here. Silas and Timothy, after staying in Berea, remember when Paul left? If you don't remember, that's fine. They then visited Thessalonica, and they brought with them not just the good news of the church in Thessalonica, they also brought a financial gift. And so you can see some of this in 1 Thessalonians 3, if you want to make a note. And as a result, Paul was able to give up his tent making and go full time. He was occupied with the word, it says, testifying that the Christ was Jesus. And then, in case you, if you've been following us in the book of Acts, these all kind of go the same way. And it's going to seem a little bit like Groundhog Day. We see something too familiar in verse 6. He goes full time. Ministering, verse 6, and when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads, I am innocent, from now on I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. And, and so hopefully you're able to put all the details together of what happens here. But I want to make sure we're clear. It was the identity of the historical Jesus and that he was the Christ promised to the Jews and all peoples that mattered. But this mission met with a common resistance and it led Paul to do the same thing he'd done in Antioch. And if you want to see that, it's in chapter 13 and to turn to the Gentiles. And I love it. I'm going to the Gentiles. You just have to see this. It's in there. Paul says, I'm going to the Gentiles. And he literally goes to the house next door to the synagogue uh, to a guy named Titius. And by all accounts, it seems like he stayed there in the house next to the synagogue. 
And so we don't know much about him, but he was a worshiper of God. Not only that, but verse 8, Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, next to Titius' house, believed in the Lord together with his entire household and lost his job, by the way. That's not stated clearly right here, but it is, you'll, you'll see it later, but and lost his job, and many of the Corinthians hearing Paul believed and were baptized. And so this shows that Paul treated the Jews of Corinth with love and grace, even after they kicked him out, rejected him, and his message. He certainly didn't forbid Jewish people from coming to Jesus. He switched the focus of his ministry to the Gentiles. And Crispus was one of those in Corinth that Paul personally baptized. It's pretty neat. And you can see that in 1 Corinthians 1.14, if you've got your finger in there. He obviously was out of a job, as I said, as a result of his conversion. He's one of the guys I'm looking forward to meeting in heaven to hear his story, right? The Jews said Paul, or they started reviling him and mocking him, and Paul's like, I'm done. And the ruler of the synagogue becomes a believer. And what kind of weirdness that must have been. Um, I'd, I'd love to hear. We don't get many details at all. Many of the Corinthians, um, it says, hearing Paul, they believed and were baptized. And Paul tells us what kind of people they were in 1 Corinthians 1.26. So again, if you've got your finger in there and you want to look at verse 26, where Paul describes the church that gets started in Corinth. He says, for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. This was a working class church. It was a working-class church in the middle of a very immoral society as well, which we'll talk about in just a minute. And I do want you to, if you've been here, note the difference between his experience in Athens among the intellectual elite and his experience among those who are working-class and hurting. And so we take a look now at the encouragement that God gives to Paul. So I want to talk for a minute before we dive into the passage and read it just to make sure we understand the setting that Paul finds himself in. He had lots of reasons to be encouraged. He had two best friends in town, Priscilla and Aquila. Silas and Timothy showed up. There was financial help. He had now full-time ministry. There were some encouraging results, even though he got some opposition from the, from the Jews in the synagogue. In the middle of all this, he fell prey to fear and discouragement. And we heard this earlier when Paul said, and I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. We all also know this is true because God gave him a vision to encourage him. And so what was getting the apostle down? Right, it's even hard for us to imagine that Paul was down, but he said he was, we're gonna take him at his word. What was it that he was struggling with? And so if you recall the Old Testament prophet Elijah, did some amazing things, but he took a nosedive after the tension of his encounter with the priests of Baal, followed by Jezebel's threat, threats. Paul had been under a lot of tension for a long time, and if you take a look and as you read through, you see the battles that he faced, and he was losing his ability to rebound. Right? He was getting beaten down. Paul was, was, was reeling similar to how Elijah was, he probably hadn't had sufficient time to recover from the beating he took 
Remember, they left him for dead. They thought he was dead. His followers thought he was dead, and he got up and went into town. He was tired, and he's now faced with ministering in the city that has the lowest standards of morality in the entire known world. Corinth was a rough place. For 500 years, there was a verb. I'm not going to give you the Greek, but it was essentially to Corinthianize, and that meant to be sexually immoral. They're Right When we say, um, you Google something, it became a verb. And Corinthianized became a verb to just be sexually immoral. It was the vaguest of the ancient world, and that understates it so much. I, I, I hesitate to use that analogy. But every night, a thousand prostitutes would descend and ply their trade in the worship of Aphrodite. You could buy anything you wanted in Corinth if you had the money. And this is where Paul found himself. And so in the middle of Paul's struggle, he's been beaten down. He's in a struggling place. He just left Athens where there was no fruit virtually. God ministered to him through a vision with words of encouragement. And these are great words for those who are beginning to wonder if they should give up the battle. And so when we feel the presence of evil... When we sense there are forces that are out to get us, to, to defeat us, when we feel that things were going great and that's about to be over, there is help in our hopelessness. And so often we have a bunch of great things going on and it only takes one, right? And we can all know what this is like. Our lives are going fine and just one thing and we think the world is ending. That one thing causing tension can make us feel like nothing is going right. And so what did God tell Paul? Please put your ears on for these two verses. If you have a red letter Bible, you'll see these are red. If you want to scroll through Acts and see how many times it's red, it's not very often. So this is Jesus himself speaking into Paul's life, verse 9, and the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you and no one will attack you to harm you. And I think this is my favorite part, for I have many in this city who are my people. Okay, from Paul's perspective, the immediate future was easy to predict because if you follow him, hey, folks start coming to Christ. What's next? See ya. That's what's happened. The last few places he's been. Soon there would be a riot. He'd be dragged in front of some authority by a crowd and probably have to leave and the pattern was pretty clear. He was like a boxer who knows what's coming the next time the bell rings. God tells him, keep at it. I am with you. It will be okay. I have people in the city. Wow. And so I want to just take a quick moment 
and make sure that we don't, again, attribute to Paul all this amazing greatness where he didn't struggle. But he did. What do we do with our situation when we struggle? And every one of you, go ahead and think of the thing you're currently struggling with. Here's what we do. We love to awfulize them. And if that word is not in your vocabulary, add it and recognize it when you see it. We take something that we're struggling with and we carry it to some conclusion that's just as bad as it possibly can be. And we predict the future and then we become fearful. It is how we roll. We assume the worst is going to happen. Paul was not immune to that and any more than you and I are. And so verses 9 and 10, hopefully stick out of your Bible if you have a red-letter version. If you don't, circle them. Somehow note, Jesus steps in at this point to do what? To encourage. And then we have verse 11. Check it out. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the Word of God among them. Got 18 months of ministry in this awful place after Jesus encouraged him. So Paul had awfulized the situation. He'd be run out of town. It didn't turn out. Imagine that. But it came close. It came close. Let's look at this guy named Gallio in the next few verses. And this is just a, a fascinating account of what happened. Verses 12 through 17, we're going to be introduced to this guy named Gallio. Verse 12, let's see it. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, this man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. And you're like, worship God contrary to what law? To Roman law not the Jewish law. And so in approaching Gallio, the Jews of Corinth that had been mad and didn't like the fact that he was probably taking people out of the synagogue, certainly didn't like the fact that Crispus was now a believer and they were just upset they needed to get rid of this guy. They tried to stop Paul's preaching work in the entire province. And so I want you to see why I say that. If Gallio had accepted the Jewish charge and found Paul guilty of the offense, which is um, pre persuading people to worship God against the law, the governors of the entire province would have had a precedent. And Paul's ministry would have been severely restricted. And I love how Luke records what happens next, verse 14. When Paul was about to open his mouth, right? He's about to go, okay. Most excellent Gallio, I had, he's about to explain himself. He's about to say, listen, I'm not, I'm, are you kidding? We're not against the laws at all of the nation. And he would find an opportunity to preach Jesus. But it says, when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or a vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and even your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. 
Wow, I, I love it, right? So far, this has always gone south for Paul, and he gets a win. This guy, Gallio, is just like, I don't want to get involved in this. Get out of here. And so note, however, what happens is Gallio's refusal to act was the same thing, basically, to recognizing Christianity as a legit religion, belief system at the time. Interesting. And so before Paul could defend himself, Gallio did it for him. One wonders whether when God said, I have people in the city, whether Gallio was one of them. Anyway, Gallio did it for him. He correctly saw that the government didn't have a role in attempting to decide religious matters, but government does have a legitimate role in matters of wrongdoing or wicked crimes. That's what Gallio himself said. Hey, if it comes to wrongdoing and really bad crimes, I'm here for you. But seriously, see ya. Verse 16, and he drove them from the tribunal. And so Christmas lost his job, right? He is the old ruler of the synagogue. Sosthenes got the job. And it didn't start out all that well. Sosthenes is now the ruler of the synagogue, verse 17. It says, and they all seized. This would be the Gentiles. You're wasting our time. They seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. Okay, wouldn't we all agree that public beatings of random people is a bad idea and probably equates to a crime? Gallio paid no attention to any of it. <laughs> right? You, I, what? So Gallio looked the other way when angry Gentiles beat Sosthenes, the leader of the synagogue. <sighs> Just after saying... If it has to do with legal matters and breaking the law, I'm here. And then he just ignores it. It's, it's actually, I'm going to say comical. And so he says, it's my duty to let Paul go because I'm not going to be involved in that. But apparently it's not his duty to allow the Gentiles. On the other hand, well, it wasn't his duty to begin beating this guy, Sosthenes. If you're in your Bible and you have 1 Corinthians dropped right there for you. 1 Corinthians 1.1 mentions Sosthenes. And so we have Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, becomes a believer, gets baptized by Paul. Sosthenes gets the job, gets beaten, also becomes a believer, and is mentioned in the first verse of Paul's letter. And, and indeed, if you read it, it looks like Paul and Sosthenes are writing the letter. It's pretty wild when you see these connections come together as you're reading through, as you're reading through Acts. And so that's all we know. I would love to know the rest of that story because I'm sure it's intriguing and amazing. And so let's go back to Antioch, verses 18 through 23. We're going to close out um, the passage before we look at how we can kind of apply this. 
And so the next few verses, this, is, this all marks the end of Paul's second missionary journey. Verse 18, after this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria and with him Priscilla and Aquila. At Sinshrea, he had cut his hair for he was under a vow. Much conversation about this has taken place in lots of places. Uh, the vow that Paul was taking was most certainly the vow of a Nazarite. You can read about it in number six if you're taking notes and want to. But it involved abstinence from drinking wine and from cutting one's own hair for a period. And at the end of that time period, the hair was first cut and then burned along with other sacrifices as a symbol of offering yourself to God. And if the vow was completed away from Jerusalem, the hair could still be cut, as it says here in Centrea, and could be brought to Jerusalem to be burned. We don't have all the whys. I would imagine that the why is Paul was making this vow out of thankfulness for the blessings, his safekeeping in Corinth, or as part of a petition or a, a prayer for future safekeeping on Paul's journey that was coming up. We don't know, but he cut his hair in Centrea, verse 19. And they came to Ephesus, and he left them there. As you're reading that, you're just like, he left them there? What did he, he left, he left uh, Priscilla and Aquila there. But he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period... He declined. What? Okay, this time he gets to the synagogue. They ask him to stay longer. <laughs> he says, I can't. Uh, verse 21, but on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. And boy, if we ever preach through Ephesians again, we'll come to this and we'll see how this all plays out. But Paul wanted to preach in Ephesus two years earlier, and if you go to Acts 16 to read about it, but he was prevented by the Holy Spirit from going to Ephesus. Now the Holy Spirit gave him the freedom to preach in this city, which was uber important, and great results were seen, and then he, he left them. Something good started Ephesus, and Paul wanted the work to continue, so he left Priscilla and Aquila there with the people. They were his trusted friends. And so Paul didn't stay long in Ephesus. Why? He wanted to get to present the offering of his Nazarite vow in Jerusalem at an upcoming feast. Um, some more details to look into. There's a lot of conversation about Paul's Nazarite vow. We're not going to have it all today. In verse 22, when he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. And so Paul went up and greeted the church. He went to Jerusalem. He fulfilled his vow in the temple. And then he went to Antioch, his home church, his very first place that he built a church, leaving Jerusalem. They must have been so pleased to have Paul return to Antioch and tell of his work over the previous three years or so, which is how long he'd been away. And then it says, after he'd spent some time there, we don't know exactly how much time Paul spent with his home congregation, but Luke wrote the account to give the sense 
of Paul's kind of immediate move into his next missionary journey. And so Paul next moved to the churches that were already founded from his previous work and include congregations in Tarsus, which is, I believe, where he's originally from, Derby, Lystra, Iconium, and Pisidian Antioch. And it says that he was strengthening all the disciples. Paul's passion for building disciples, not merely making converts, was really, really evident. He went back and visited, and you can, you, you can know what kind of questions he would ask, what kind of ministering he would do to grow the people that had become followers of Jesus. That work was important to Paul. It should be important to us. And so as we look at today's passage, put all that together, you see Paul's ministry in Corinth. I want to focus on the encouragement that, Paul, that, that God gave to Paul. And I want to take a look at what Paul needed to be reminded of by God, right? And I want us to not forget, Paul needed to be reminded by God of some very simple truths. Ones that you would think, are you kidding? You wrote half the New Testament. Why would you need to be reminded of these things? But he did. I want us to acknowledge that we need these reminders as well. So let's take a look at four reminders. And before we look at them, I just want to I want to make sure we really get the context here. Many people came to faith in Christ through Paul's ministry in the city. In spite of that, Paul became discouraged and fearful. Maybe he was worn out. Maybe he was fighting personal spiritual battles that we don't know about. Maybe there were other factors. Didn't he talk about a thorn in his side that everybody loves to talk about, but we really have no idea what he was struggling with? Whatever the reason, Paul reaches a low point. And he needed to be reminded he was not alone in that discouragement. And maybe you need to learn the same lesson. I guarantee I do. So what happens when Paul reaches his low point? God meets him there. This is what God does for all of us, he meets us at our low points and gives us exactly what we need. And this just might be the encouragement you need to hear today. Reminder number one, we are not alone. God says to Paul, for I am with you. This promise was the basis for God's command to not be afraid, to keep preaching, to keep keeping on. When we understand what this means, that he's with us, and who says that they're with us, the creator of the universe, it's enough. And so here's God's reminder to Paul, I am with you. And so we have a tendency to forget this very important truth, that God is with us. And it is really the foundation for any service that we offer to him, is that he's with us. To be a witness for him, he's with us. It's the promise he gives to all of his children. And so you can go out on this mission of loving God and loving others with confidence that you will never be alone. Mm. And I love it when Jesus just wraps things up for us, and we're going to see him do it a couple times here. Matthew 28, 20, the very end of the 
Gospel of Matthew, Jesus says, and behold, I am with you every once in a while when you think you need it, if I'm around and I'm not busy. No, he says, I am with you always, always to the end of the age. I am with you always to the end of the age. If this is true, our second reminder is based on it. Reminder number two, fear is an enemy of our faith. What did God say to Paul? Do not be afraid. And so I just, I, boy, they, there's books and tons. Here's what fear does. Fear causes us to focus on ourselves. That is where it becomes dangerous when it, becomes, when it comes to our faith. Because our faith is to be all about serving others. And when we turn it back and focus on ourselves, it becomes an enemy of our faith. It's the complete opposite of what God calls us to. He calls us to focus on others. Another source of fear in our lives, and I just want to take a minute and give you a picture to help you understand how fear works in our lives. Fear comes about in our lives quite regularly because we believe that we're in control. Okay, and anytime I use that word control, a whole bunch of you control freaks say, well, I'm going to tune out for a little bit. But here's the picture that I want you to think of, right? When you have toddlers, and toddlers are in the back seat, and they need stuff to keep them occupied while you're trying to navigate dangerous roads, many times some of the car seats come with a little steering wheel. Uh-huh. Okay, a little baby steering wheel. And the kid can pretend that they're driving while you're going down I-95. The kid can drive, okay? That's you. That's you. You believe that I'm doing something, that I'm controlling things, and the creator of the universe is the one at the wheel, making everything happen according to his will, according to how he has has in his providence designed things to work, and you're sitting there going, uh, it's ridiculous. But that is one of the main sources of fear is we feel like, well, I, I felt like a long time I had this. It was all me. I didn't have any problems. Well, guess what? You didn't. You didn't have control. God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He's running it all. This is all about us getting in tune with what he's doing, not us taking the wheel from him and thinking we have some control. Keep that little toddler, and when you, when, when you find yourself um, battling for control in your life, keep that one in your mind, just in the back seat, driving this little plastic thing. That's us. This is Jesus, John 14, verse 27. Whew. Peace. Peace. I leave with you. My peace I give to you. 
it doesn't look anything like the peace this world gives. Nothing. That's what he says. Not as the world gives do I give to you. And he says, let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. And John teaches us that in the middle of the gospel. It shows us how the creator of the universe came and gave himself for us. And tells us that that's what matters. We have this little life in the scope of eternity that we just lose our minds over all the time. And Jesus says, I got this. I have the steering wheel. My peace I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Why? Because he is with you. He's driving, you aren't. One of those quotes I don't like to necessarily quote because you can always, well, mm, but what about, right? George MacDonald says this, and he's, C.S. Lewis considers him his mentor. He says, the one thing we owe absolutely to God is to never be afraid of anything. The one thing we owe absolutely to God is to never be afraid of anything. If the creator of the universe is with you, is driving the car, what is there to be afraid of? Mm. It's hard. And it requires us to stop trusting in the toddler steering wheel. All right, reminder number three. Silence is a temptation. God tells Paul straight up, do not be silent. And this reminder is focused and built on the first two. God is with us and don't be afraid. Our mission is to love God and love others. It's on the wall. The greatest thing we can do to show love to others is introduce them to Jesus through our lives and through our words. And when we are discouraged and fearful and believe that we're alone, we forget our mission, we clam up, we stop loving others by telling about Jesus because it's not working, I don't feel like it, whatever. The Bible tells us how beautiful are the feet of him who brings good news. And so God has given us this command to go and be witnesses. We may have doubts, fears, and worries, but we need to understand that he's with us, that he is in control, and we are simply called to love others by introducing them to Jesus with our lives and our words. We often feel like we don't know everything that's happening or we're not totally in control. We're not going to open our mouths. Everything has to be perfect. It's a huge temptation and we need to fight. Jesus told us this in Luke 12. Do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Wow, what a promise. Keep speaking, continue to be faithful in your witness, and the Holy Spirit will lead you. He will. Many of you can testify to the reality of things coming out of your mouths as you're sharing Jesus with others and you had no idea where they came from. Mm, It's real. Reminder number four, final one. God has people. (laughs) I love that. God has people. He said, I have many in this city who are my people. And, and he doesn't tell us exactly what that means. He probably 
means that I've got people there that I know are going to come to me, and boy, I need you to minister to them. And also, hey, I have folks that are going to minister to you as well, Paul. It doesn't matter. God says, I have people in this city. These are encouraging words. Paul's work wasn't going to be fruitless. Many of the Corinthians were tired of the endless immorality of Corinth. Some were suffering massive guilt and amazing emptiness of their soul. They were ready to receive Christ. And according to Paul's other writings, these people in Corinth included Erastus, Gaius, Stephanos, Fortunatus, and others. And according to verses 11 through 18, Paul stayed in Corinth for 18 months. For him, that was like putting down roots. And it was not long before there were believers, possibly hundreds. Persecution came, just as Paul had expected. But when the Jews took him to, to Gallio and charged him, the opposition backfired. And Paul and his followers enjoyed more freedom than before. God has people. God has people. I love this. He has it. He knows what he has, he's doing. He has people. And so I was like, well, just last week, didn't we see this? In Acts 17, verses 25 through 27, Paul's preaching at the Areopagus, and he's describing the unknown God to them. And he says, he, this God you don't know about, he himself gives to all mankind, all mankind, life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. God has people. And so Paul needed to be reminded of his own preaching. And the very next words of that passage, after verse 27 of Acts 17, Paul says this to the folks in Athens. He says, yet he is actually not far from each one of us. And so God wants you to hear this today. I am not far from you. Do not be afraid. Stop awfulizing your situation. Look to me. I love you. Keep ministering. Keep caring. Keep speaking my name. Inactivity will only lead to more fear. Believe that I am with you and that I will give you all the protection you need. And so God's reminder to Paul is also a reminder to us. Back to our main point and updated. When our life gets difficult, we are tempted to believe we are alone. We aren't. He is not far from each one of us. And so the singers and musicians want to come up We're going to sing another in the fire to remind ourselves that we're not alone. I texted Sid yesterday, and I was like, did you pick the final song? She's like, yeah. Like, I mad at her or something? I was like, it's like you read my sermon before I even started it. It's one of the choruses from the song. There is another in the fire. Standing next to me, there is another in the waters holding back the seas. And should I ever need reminding what power set me free, there is a grave that holds nobody. And now that power lives in me. 
Romans 8.11 says, If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the encouragement it is to us to know that Paul needed encouragement. Thank you for giving us this account where we can see that this, this man that you, that you chose, that you raised up, still faltered, still struggled with fear, still struggled with control. And we can relate to that, Lord, because we struggle with those same things. And so what was written in your word was written for us. Help us to as we go through this week to remember that we are not alone. Help us to not be people who opalize our situation and live in fear of what might happen as opposed to focusing on what we need to do, which is speak and love those around us. And we praise you for the fact that you have people, you have people in this city. You know what you're doing and you're with us every second. Praise you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand as we sing, guys, and sing this out loud.